When was the last time you heard someone say, we're in a new normal? Wouldn't it be wonderful if the new normal were better than the old normal? It never seems to be the case, does it? Uh, For instance, consider Congress and the budgeting process. Do, Do you know that the last time that Congress actually completed the full budget process was in 1996? Since then, it's been a new normal of omnibus bills, when you hear that word omnibus bill, you figure, well, that's, they're completing the budget. No, that's, that's not what that means. That means, you know what omnibus, omnibus means, right? It just means a bunch of stuff thrown in a barrel. It's pork. The phrase the new normal was actually coined in 2003 when the dot-com bubble burst. Now, some of you young people, you're too young to remember that. Uh, But people at that time were making fortunes basically overnight. Uh, uh, People with MBAs were starting new companies right and left. Everybody was getting rich. If you had stock on the stock market, it was worth kajillions. And then the bubble burst, and companies that had been valued in the millions of dollars were worth pennies on the dollar, and people were brought back to the reality that they were going to have to live the rest of their lives in the new normal. We heard the phrase a new normal a lot during the COVID pandemic. During the lockdowns, many predicted a new normal. They predicted that our lives had changed forever. No one would shake hands anymore, even after the pandemic was over. Social distancing would become a permanent fact of life. We would need to be vaccinated against the the variants of COVID for the rest of our lives. Yada, yada. Few of those predictions came true, thankfully. More people do continue to work from home. Many office buildings in major cities are eerily empty, but that's about it. This morning, we're going to consider the first new normal. It's described for us here in the first eight verses of Genesis 4. So let's read them together. If you don't have a Bible, I I encourage you to to find one under the seat in front of you. Genesis 4, reading verses 1 through 8. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Consider the only time things were truly normal was in the Garden of Eden before the fall, before the curse. The only truly normal human beings were Adam and Eve 
even if they didn't have belly buttons. After Adam and Eve sinned, after God pronounced judgment on them, after the curse, things were no longer normal. Or we could say there was a a new normal at this point. The first new normal in human history. Now, as you might expect, a description of the first new normal is filled with a lot of firsts. There are at least a dozen. The first sex, the first conception, the first birth, the first growth to adulthood, the first siblings, the first family, the first offerings, the first anger, the first depression, the first murder, the first lie, and the first question asked by a human being. It was indeed a whole new world beyond the cherubim who guarded the entrance to the garden. And this dozen splits right in half. The first six firsts are positive and hopeful. The second six firsts are negative and dreadful. So this morning, let's begin with the new normal. It began as hopeful. The new normal began hopeful. Now, according to verse 1, the new normal began with sex. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Now, a person unfamiliar with the words that are normally used in the Bible Uh, might respond, well, of course Adam knew his wife. You better get to know someone pretty well if you're going to marry them. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word know is used as as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. It's used three times in this chapter alone. Now, many euphemisms for sex are vulgar, they're ugly, But God's Word uses a word that is a wonder for what it communicates about sex. In God's economy, sex is confined to a married couple, a man and a woman in a committed relationship in which that intimacy of that one flesh relationship is intended to draw them together for a lifetime. Sex is intended to help one spouse come to know the other spouse as no one else in the world. The fact that Bible uses the word no as a euphemism in this case tells us that one night stands with total strangers are not what sex is for. In fact, it's interesting, the book of Proverbs uses the word strange woman for one who would come in and break up a marriage relationship because she's not there to really get to know that person. By the way, the fact that the Scriptures don't mention sex until this point is another pretty good argument that things moved really fast after Eve was was created. Probably just a matter of a couple of days before Adam and Eve sinned and they were exiled from the garden. Now, in this new normal, there is a direct connection between sex and conception and the birth of children. That has always been God's plan. God intended human beings to live in families, a mother and a father married for life, having children and raising those children in a family, in a home. 
and you've heard me say this several times recently, it wasn't until the pill was invented in the 1960s that human beings developed the medical knowledge to sever this connection. And it's a connection that should not be severed. I counsel couples primarily, if you're going to marry, then children, seeking to have children, that's part of the equation. So the next elements in this new normal were the first conception and the first birth. Now, you ladies, try to put yourself in Eve's place for a moment. She knew nothing about what was happening in her body as she conceived and the pregnancy developed. I mean, you really have to wonder if Adam and Eve thought that this first child would come fully formed in adult form. I mean, that's after all how Adam came into being, how Eve came into being. I mean, when they thought about children... One of the... uh, One of the commentaries that I read imagined Adam and Eve counting down the months until Eve would would deliver her baby. But Eve didn't know how long it was going to be. She didn't know how big she was going to get. You remember in in chapter 3, God promised Eve sorrow in her conception. And I have to wonder if part of the sorrow that Eve endured was the, 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 the fear of the unknown. Not knowing what was happening. But whatever that fear, whatever that anguish, whatever that angst, whatever the labor pains were, they were all forgotten when... She held that first tiny human being. I mean, think back. Think back to the birth of your first child, to that experience of holding that baby for the first time. Now, multiply that by a hundred. This wasn't just their first baby, this was the first baby. Don't you imagine they counted his little fingers and toes? They looked at his eyes to see if they were the same color as Eve's or Adam's. Use a little sanctified imagination. Can you hear Eve cooing to her baby? Can you hear Adam singing a lullaby? This was all part of the experience. For the first time. Now, we have some idea of what was in Eve's heart. Her words are recorded here in verse 1. She said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, these words explain why the couple named the first child Cain. Cain sounds like the Hebrew word translated acquired in this verse. And she goes on to say that she acquired this child from the Lord or with the Lord. And I believe that at this point, Eve is alluding to the promise that God gave back in Genesis chapter 3, where God promised her a seed. We saw how Adam exercised faith in the first proclamation of the gospel when he named his wife Eve, life. And now I believe you see Eve exercising faith in that same promise. When she says, I have gotten this child from the Lord. This is the seed. She thought thought that that little baby that she held in her arms was going to be the rescuer was going to be the Redeemer, was going to be the Messiah. But we all know Cain wasn't the Messiah. He was going to be a murderer. 
One more point. Eve said that she acquired a man from the Lord. The word translated man in this sentence is the word ish. You remember this word? You remember when Adam first saw his wife, he said, she shall be called Isha because she was taken from Ish. And here she turns it around. And she said, now, and Ish has come from Isha. I think she was kind of overjoyed that she now had the opportunity to take part in in filling the earth, in being a part of that, that dominion that God had given to Adam and to Eve. And she expressed it in that one word, man. I have a man child. I have an ish from the Lord. Now, I don't want to take much time with it, but there's another first in this new normal, and that is the first growth to adulthood. Now, the passage doesn't really say anything about it, but Cain, as well as his brother Abel, must have grown through childhood and adolescence to become adults. Now, how long did that process take? I think most of us assume, we assume, that it took 15 or 20 years. I mean, that's how, that's how long childhood and adolescence last, right? Except if you go to the genealogies in, in Genesis chapter 5, you see these people at this point living to be like 900 years old. And not one of them had a child before they were... 65. So I begin to wonder if maybe that growth process extended a little bit longer in that day. You know, I complain because we have adolescents today who are 30 years old. I wonder if they had adolescents back in that day that were 50 years old. That's free. You don't have to pay for that. Just one of those things that I thought about this week. In any case, growing up was part of the new normal. Then the text parks on another couple firsts. The first siblings and the first family. The first siblings and the first family. We learn in verse 2 that Cain went into the family business. He became a father, a farmer like dear old dad. But the second born, Abel, went in a different direction. He, he was the first shepherd. Now, most commentators, most Bible scholars at this point do not believe that human beings were eating meat at this point. So what was the point of raising sheep? Well, I I guess you could say it must have been to get the wool. And I have to wonder if if, uh, Abel didn't run the, the first haberdashery. Uh, he was also the first tailor as well as the first shepherd. Uh, I don't know. We'll talk more about this uh, in a minute. What we do learn very quickly is that there was the first sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel. You know, you might wonder, is sibling rivalry really a thing, or is it just some theory that some psychologist cooked up back in the 1960s? No, I'm here to tell you, sibling rivalry is found again and again in the book of Genesis. It is indeed a thing. We not only have Cain and Abel, we have Jacob and Esau, and we have Joseph and his 11 brothers. This dynamic has been at work in many a family down through the centuries. Every parent ought to be on the lookout for this childhood disease because, as this story teaches us, it can be deadly. 
Now, we can discuss what Christian parents ought to do if they find this virus in their home, but let me make one point very strongly right here. Scripture teaches us that often it is the parents who actually spread the virus of sibling rivalry in the home. Isaac favored Esau while Rebekah favored Jacob. And it continued on the next generation when Jacob gave to Joseph the coat of many colors, setting up rivalry and hatred between him and his 11 brothers that would eventually land Joseph in slavery and prison. Listen, any parent who reads the Bible should know better than to display any kind of favoritism for any child over another. No matter what you might feel in your heart of hearts, that favoritism better not come out. But the problems between Cain and Abel went deeper than sibling rivalry, we, we see here also the first outworking of the two humanities that I talked about a few weeks ago. The two humanities that God prophesied in the curse on the serpent, the godly seed versus the ungodly seed, the righteous versus the wicked, believers versus unbelievers, sheep and goats. We see these two humanities from the very first family in Genesis right on through the last chapter of Revelation. Today is the day, International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Believers. That's part of this division. You have... Believers faithful to the Lord being persecuted by unbelievers unfaithful to the Lord. So what I'm saying is that this conflict between Cain and Abel was more than a natural phenomenon. It was more than sibling rivalry. This was a spiritual reality. Now, we'll dive down into what divided these two sons on a spiritual level in just a moment. But the point that I want to make right now is that the ungodly seed killed the godly seed. That act of murder was a prophecy. Because since that day, that's what's been happening again and again and again. The ungodly oppress and persecute and at times martyr the godly. You remember what Jesus said to the generation of his day? He told them that they would be held accountable for all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Jesus traced the martyrs in the godly line beginning with Abel. And if you hold yourself to be part of that godly line, then Jesus promises the same to you. He said to his disciples, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Brother Dale alluded to it in his, in his prayer. It's on the horizon for us even in this country. And we need to be prepared for it. It's been this way since the beginning. It should be no surprise to us. Well, I've already telegraphed my second punch here, as it were. While the new normal began hopeful, the new normal ended dreadful. It ended in murder. 
But we need to step back and examine what led to that murder. It all revolved around the first offerings. The first offerings? Now, if you're really thinking, if you're still awake, and if you're not, go get some coffee. But if you're still awake and you're really thinking, you ought to be thinking, what offerings? What in the world is this talking about? How many years did Cain and Abel live before Moses? I don't really know, but it was hundreds and hundreds of years. The law of Moses wasn't around. There was nothing that prescribed sacrifice at this point. And in fact, the word that's translated offerings here is a very general word. It is not a word that's used in the law of Moses for, for the sin offering or the trespass offering or the peace offering. This is a, a very general word. It really doesn't tell us anything. It's a very generic word. Uh, Brother Dale prayed a, a few minutes ago, and he prayed for us as we offer our offerings. And this word is used basically in that same way. It has to do with any gift that you give, and if you give it to God, you call it an offering, and that's the idea here. So why these offerings? We're told in verse 3 that Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground, which may have been a grain offering. Okay, this word in a couple of places in the Old Testament is used of a grain offering, which could be flour. It could actually be a sheaf of, of wheat. Verse 4 says that Abel brought a, a blood sacrifice. How do we know this was a blood sacrifice when it tells us that he, he brought the first of his flock? Because he also offered there the fat. Well, you don't get the fat of that sacrifice without slaughtering this. Now, just, just on an aesthetic level, let me ask you. Would you rather have a, a nice bowl of fruit up here, the fruit of the ground, or would you rather have a bloody slab of meat? I mean, which appeals to you more? Yeah, from a, from a strictly human perspective, we look at this and say, you know, why didn't God accept Cain's offer? And really, the whole story turns on that question. Why did God reject Cain's offering from his employment as a farmer and accept Abel's offering from his employment as a shepherd. I mean, did God hate farmers or something? Well, the answer to this question is found in the New Testament. So I want you to keep your finger here in Genesis 4 and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse 4. Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. I repeat, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice. The difference was faith. Now, in the Bible, faith is not something that just hangs in midair. You know, people today, they, they say things like, I have faith. And when you hear so, I, I, I'm, we're actually watching, my, my wife and I, we're actually watching a, a television show now where, where one of the characters is a man of faith. 
He has faith. And I always want to ask, faith in what? Somebody tells you they have faith, they're a person of faith, a man of faith, that's the question to ask. Faith in what? In what did Abel place his faith that caused his offering to please God? Well, there's another New Testament passage I won't ask you to turn. It's found in in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Now, I think in order to really understand what's going on here, you have to combine a couple of things. It's not even just 2 and 2 plus 2. It's kind of like 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8. But if you put them all together, here's what I think must have happened. While these these young men were growing up, and remember, that would have been 15 or 20 years, at some point during that time period, God came to Adam and said, if you are going to worship acceptably, then it has to be a blood sacrifice. If you're going to be accepted by me, I require a blood sacrifice. Now, I I think that makes sense based on what we learned last Sunday. God made skins from animals to clothe Adam and Eve because of their sin. And at that point, he was willing to sacrifice animals to do that. And as I told you last week, I believe that was a distant prophecy of the blood sacrifice that Jesus would make. And so here, God, I believe, institutes this. If Abel had faith... He had to have faith in the Word of God. And so what seems most likely, I can't prove this, but what seems most likely, the most likely construction to put on these circumstances is that God told Adam, if you're going to approach me, if you're going to worship me acceptably, it has to be with a blood sacrifice. And Adam taught that to both of his sons. So it makes sense here that Abel brought a blood sacrifice. And in fact, I'll go beyond that. It makes sense to me that Abel may have been a shepherd for this very reason. It wasn't just so that he could provide wool and be the first haberdasher. That's a cool word, isn't it? It was so that he could provide animal sacrifices to his family. And I'll go even a step beyond that. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, the passage that I just read a moment ago about about those martyrs where Abel was included, he described those men as prophets. Abel was the first prophet. What message do you think Abel, the first prophet, preached? What makes sense to me is without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And he not only preached the message, he believed the message, and so he prepared to to be able to give that kind of of a sacrifice. And just using a little bit of sanctified imagination, I think that probably for a while, Cain traded with his brother, traded some of his grain, and traded some of his fruit. Some of that food he traded with with Abel, and Abel would provide uh, uh, animals, and, and I think for a while Cain probably sacrificed. But there's a little rivalry here, and I think Cain got sick of that. 
And he finally said, no more. What I grow is just as good as Abel. And so I'm going to bring what I grow to the Lord. And when Cain took that step, he invented the first man-made religion. I would, in fact, call it the first cult. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to keep wor- worshiping uh, Elohim. I'm going to keep worshiping God, but I'm going to worship Him my way. And human beings have been doing that ever since. Now you know why God rejected Cain's offering. God has always rejected man-made religion. What we invent on the religious level will never please God, and there are lots of people today inventing their own religions. Oprah Winfrey has been preaching this for years. Just step up to the spiritual smorgasbord and pick and choose whatever you want, and God will love it. No. God says, if you're going to be accepted by me, you will come by means of blood sacrifice. Now, here's why I think this all makes sense. It wasn't just Abel that brought blood sacrifice before Moses spelled out all these sacrifices. Who else did? It wasn't just Abel. We see Abraham making blood sacrifices. We see Jacob making blood sacrifices. This was common before God stopped Moses at the burning bush and invited him up to Mount Sinai and told him about blood sacrifice. Where did that come from? At some point, I believe God revealed it, and I believe God revealed it to Adam. Father Adam, he passed it on to his sons. But Cain said, none for me, thanks. I'll invent my own religion. And 1 John 3.17 enjoins us not to be as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Cain wasn't just wrong. Cain wasn't just mistaken. He was of the wicked one. His novel religion was devilish and demonic. And he was the seed of of the serpent. He was the seed of Satan. He was the first in that long line of ungodly that opposed God and his religion and his people. Now, Cain's rejection, or excuse me, God's rejection of Cain led to the first anger and the first depression. Cain was angry. Our our text says very angry. He was angry with God, and he was angry with God's representative on the scene, his brother Abel. Now, several of the, the sources that I read in my research emphasized that Cain was jealous of Abel. But that's not what God emphasizes here. When God puts his his finger on the problem, what does he say? He zeroes in on Cain's anger. And the word for anger here uh, is the idea of burning with anger. This is red-in-the-face type anger. We're talking about somebody who, who gets their blood up. And... 
Anger is a, a physiological phenomenon. It dumps adrenaline into the body. It raises the blood pressure. It prepares us for action. And that's why anger is so often difficult to control. It's why at times we spew hot lava all over people when we're angry. God not only tells Cain that he was angry, he notices Cain's countenance, his face, and he says that Cain's face fell. That's the literal translation. Cain's face fell. Now, what does that mean? Well, some of the modern versions of the Bible translate that Cain was scowling or Cain was disappointed or Cain's expression was downcast. A couple of, of, uh, of, of the versions simply say Cain was sad. I'm going to use a different word, a word very common in our vocabulary today. Cain was depressed and it showed in his face. It showed in his demeanor. You know, often when we are depressed, it's difficult to hide, isn't it? And notice that God himself connects Cain's anger with Cain's depression. Now, before we explore this connection, and it's an important connection... We need to pause for a moment and notice that God is counseling Cain here. God was the first biblical counselor. He counseled Adam and Eve, and now he's counseling Cain. And what's interesting to me in this passage, and this is so easy to overlook, God never says boo to Abel. I mean, do you think God knew what was coming? He never says boo to Abel. Abel is one of his children. He knows where Abel stands. The New Testament calls him Abel the righteous, Abel the prophet. And in this story, Abel's an also-ran. Four times in this passage, Abel is called Cain's brother. I mean, that's who he is. He's, he's only in a supporting role here. Who, who's the main character here? The main character here is Cain. God's interested in Cain. Get a hold of that. Even when men are sinful, even when they're headed on the road to hell, God still is interested in them. And so God is trying to to get a hold of Cain and to turn him around. And God's... Uh, counseling focused on the connection between Cain's anger and his depression. Now, I don't think all depression is caused by anger. I don't think that all depression is necessarily caused by sin. I believe that there is such a thing as chemical depression, depression that has a physical cause, a lack of certain chemicals functioning correctly in the brain, If you look in Scripture, in stories like Elijah's, the Bible itself teaches that there can be physical factors, lack of sleep, lack of rest, lack of proper diet. Physical factors can play in this area of depression. But having said all of that, there's a good bit of human depression that is caused by sin. We can't deny it. God himself here diagnoses it. Listen, the next time you're depressed and you can't figure out why, here's what you need to do. Go back to where the depression began and ask yourself, was there something I was angry about at that point? You'll be surprised at how often there is. I mean, what happens when you what happens when you get really angry? I just talked about it. It it pours the adrenaline into your bloodstream, and then and then there a lot of times, even if it's even if you don't actually shout and scream and and pound and kick like a three year old, 
still somehow there's just this huge outlay of energy. And after it's over, you're completely deflated. The energy is gone. And all the stuff that you're supposed to be doing, you don't feel like doing. And so you don't. And what happens? You begin this downward spiral. The things that, I, that I'm supposed to do, I don't get them done. And then because I didn't get them done, I feel even worse. And step after step after step, if I allow that to happen, I spiral down into depression. So what should I do about depression? Well, God counsels Cain in verse 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So first of all, he says, if you do well, if you do what is right, literally, you will be lifted up. The word that's translated accepted there the normal translation of that word is lifted up. I don't know why the translators don't, don't translate it that way here. God says to Cain, look, if you will do what is right, you'll be lifted up out of this, this depression. Your countenance will be lifted up. Cain is cast down, he's depressed because of his sin, and God gives him very straightforward counsel. If you do what's right, if you respond to your circumstances correctly, you will be lifted up out of your, your, your depression. And this is a general principle that any of us can use for dealing with depression. You are on that downward spiral, what do you need to do? Two words. Do right. Do the next right thing. If you're a housewife, that might be doing the dishes or, or making the beds or cleaning the bathroom. I don't know. If you're a businessman, you probably got a to-do list on, your, on your, your desk. Pick out the top thing. Get it done. What happens when you get even the simplest chore done? You're lifted up. There's, there's that little sense of accomplishment, even if it's just doing the dishes, even if it's just cleaning out your email box. And then once you've done that, God's given you a little nudge upward. Keep going. Do the next right thing. See, God had it right. He gave Cain the most on-target biblical counsel for dealing with, with depression. Do the next right thing and you'll be lifted up. But God goes beyond here giving a general principle for how to deal with depression to giving some very specific counsel with regard to the sin of anger. God says, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And I believe that, that, that God here in that verse is talking about the sin of anger now. The sin of anger lies at the door and its desire is for you. So God pictures this, this anger like a wild beast whose lair is just outside your front door. When you or I get angry, that's how close that wild beast is. It is just outside the front door. And God says its desire is for you. It wants to eat you up. And you've experienced it. I've experienced when that, when that anger really does get a hold of you, what do you do? I don't know, but whatever it is, it's destructive. 
You say destructive words. You do destructive things. We've all been there. Isn't that an accurate picture of anger? But God makes a final point to Cain. He says, but you can rule over it. He says, but you can rule over that anger. Now, many of us say, nah, you don't know my anger. When I get angry, mm. Listen, God may, may know you better than you know yourself. Think about a couple that's having an angry argument. I'm, I'm talking about knock down, drag out. They are yelling and screaming at each other. Maybe the wife is throwing things at her husband, and he's probably punched a nice big hole in the wall in two or three places, and then the doorbell rings. And it's the pizza that they ordered 45 minutes ago before the argument started, and one of them has to go pay for the pizza. Just like that. Done. They ruled over that sin of anger just like that. Now remember, Cain isn't a regenerate person. God's not talking to a regenerate person here. He's talking to the spawn of Satan. And he says, but you can rule over it. We try to excuse it. We say, you don't know me. You don't know my anger. God says, you can rule over it. You can take care of it. You can stop it just like that if you want to. used to have an elder that would say, human beings can do anything they want to do. It's just whether you have enough want to. But we know the end of the story. Cain does not heed God's counsel. And so the story ends with the first murder. Now, there's some disagreement about the meaning of verse 8. Some ancient translations of the Old Testament translate verse 8 something like this. Cain told his brother, let's go into the field. And then Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Those older versions make it seem like Cain is guilty of premeditated murder. That is, I don't, that's not the way I think it happened. See, that's not the way anger often works. Now, again, go back to that picture. When Cain became angry, God said that that, that wild beast was sitting outside the door waiting to eat him up. And when Cain didn't listen to God, you know what he did? He opened the door and said, here, come in. I've got a bed for you right here in my heart. Isn't that what we do with anger often? We cherish it. We make a pet out of it. And when we do that, we put ourselves in the place where without thinking about it, without it being premeditated, we can do the most destructive things. It says that Cain and Abel were just talking out there in the field. But that wild beast of anger was already in Cain's heart. He had not put it out. And Cain did something he had never thought about doing before. Couldn't even have imagined doing it. And killed his brother. Anger carried to its logical conclusion ends in murder. Or let me put it a different way. Anger always carries with it the seed of murder. 
Now, I'm not saying that. That's what Jesus says. Turn with me to Matthew 5. This is the last passage we'll turn to. I need to end this message soon. Many of you are familiar with Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is dealing with the misconceptions that the Pharisees were teaching about the law, about the law of Moses. So you get to verse 21, and Jesus is dealing with the law against murder. Okay, So look in verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, remember, he's talking about murder now. He's talking about the law against murder. And Jesus says in verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his fool, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now what Jesus is trying to to teach here is that what we cherish in our hearts is just as important as what comes out of our mouth or what we do with our hands. And he is making a direct connection between anger and murder. Now, a lot of times we don't physically murder someone, but we will murder them with our words. We will tear them into tiny little pieces and flush them down the toilet with our words. Anger always carries that destructive seed of murder in its heart. And that's why we can't ever afford to make a pet out of anger. You can't let it in the door. You can't cherish it in your heart. The new normal described here in Genesis 4 is a microcosm of the world we live in yet today. While the human race survived the fall, survived the exile from the garden, the sin nature immediately began to work itself out in the lives of that first family in the most vile way, in anger ending in murder. And that same sin nature, thousands of years old now, is still working itself out in our lives today. Any person who would deny the sin nature... I would simply advise them to go turn on the nightly news. Anger, murder, conflict, controversy, warfare. This is us, folks. We are fallen and we are flawed. But here's what's wonderful. That that first new normal began with hope and it ended with dread. Jesus has turned that around. We're in dreadful circumstances right now, but Jesus gives hope. Because you see, Jesus is that blood sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So the question is, have you trusted Jesus? Is he your blood sacrifice, the sacrifice for your sins to make you acceptable to God? Have you claimed him as your sacrifice? Are you following Jesus? It's that simple. And so as I close this morning, if you're uncertain about that, you need to fly to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to be my sacrifice I will follow you, Lord Jesus. 
And some of you, what I've talked about in terms of anger, there are steps you need to take. You, you need to clean out that wild beast that's in your heart. Some of you, with re, regard to depression, you need to do the next right thing, and you need, to, you need to cling to the Lord right now for some grace, some strength to take that step and do the next right thing because that will be the first step out of that prison of depression.